Singapore, global trading hub and business centre, major tourist destination and home to over 5 million people. If you're lucky enough to have visited recently, it probably sounded a lot like this. But the city-state wasn't always a world-leading commercial hotspot. Not so long ago, it sounded significantly more like this. The Lion City's rise from swampy, tropical outpost with just 100,000 settlers at the beginning of the 19th century to one of the world's richest and most innovative nations has long been lauded by geographers and economists alike. But could this strong focus on development and education that sees Singapore top charts across the board perhaps be the very reason this country is always lagged behind on the sports field? You're listening to... Hello and welcome back to another episode of Outside Football Podcast. If you're tuning in after listening to our earlier shows, thanks for joining us again. And if this is your first time, you've downloaded the podcast that champions international football away from the spotlight. Don't forget to find us on Twitter at, at @outsidefooty. that's footy with a Y, where you can find links to all our episodes, plus updates from the game around the world. We also have a website, it's outsidefootball.podbean.com. Following on from our last episode, which told the moving story of football in Eritrea, we're back to focus on a new national team. In the hot seat today are the Lions of Singapore. Now, this episode is of huge significance for me on a personal level. I am myself a quarter Singaporean. My grandma was born in Singapore and lived there until the 1960s, uh, before marrying an Irishman and moving to Britain. And it's also the birthplace of my mum. But at 23 years old, and given that my best position on the field is referee, I think it's safe to say that my chances of a call-up are pretty slim. But... Speaking of international caps, luckily, I managed to speak to someone who has plenty of them. Who better to tell the story than Singapore's all-time record appearance maker, Daniel Bennett, joins us later in the programme. But first, it's time to look at how it all began, as we look to find out why this hugely successful country seems to lag behind the competition on the football pitch. Now... Before we even mention the round ball, there's plenty we need to discuss about this island's colourful past. Lying at the southernmost tip of Eurasia between Indonesia and Peninsular Malaysia, flanked by the Malacca Strait to the west and the South China Sea to the east, Singapore's fortunes changed with the 1819 arrival of British colonial officer Sir Stamford Raffles and the East India Company. In previous centuries, the island, known under the Sanskrit-derived name Singapura, or Lion City, had featured as a minor trade post in various kingdoms and empires, but had faded away into obscurity since the early 1600s. Raffles, today considered the founder of modern Singapore, he has a very fancy hotel named after him, revolutionised the island. From the beginning, he had recognised the importance of Singapore's greatest asset, its location. Smack bang in the middle of the Pacific and Indian Oceans, the width and positioning of its straits made Singapore the perfect place to establish a new, major port. And that's exactly what happened. Under British control, the Singapore Freeport attracted masses of traffic, bringing in international business from the region's other, less efficient posts. And with Chinese, Indians and Malays all flocking to the island in search of the abounding work opportunities, as well as the many Eurasians involved in the trade business, the island began to flourish. On the death of the East India Company, the area was absolved into the British Empire and would remain in British hands until 1942. Then. At the Battle of Singapore, the empire suffered arguably its most significant and humiliating defeat, losing its colony to the invading Japan. 
The Japanese occupation would be brief, but bloody. My grandma was 10 years old when the island changed hands. She's often told me of how her brother was forced to hide under a manhole cover to avoid the soldiers who were looking for him, or the time her sister received a blow from a rifle butt after refusing to bow to the Japanese, or the way she would drop cigarettes from a window into the field behind a house so the emaciated Australian prisoners of war would find them during their forced marches. Though Japan's World War II surrender came just three years later in 1945 and the island returned to British control, for the Empire, the damage was done. Britain had let its subjects down, and the post-war years saw a gradual increase in autonomy for Singapore. Across the world, the colonial era was waning, and in 1963, Britain and Singapore formally parted ways. The island subsequently joined the territories of Malaya and Borneo to form a new country, Malaysia. However, a fiery two-year period punctuated with arguments over race, politics and finance saw Singapore expelled from the Union by unanimous vote in 1965, technically earning it the curious distinction of being the first modern nation to become independent against its will. Luckily, this ungracious introduction to life as a new country did little to hold Singapore back. A succession of forward-thinking government policies quickly housed its fast-growing population and encouraged multinational corporations to move in, similar to the moves pulled by Raffles over a hundred years before. Today, the International Monetary Fund estimates Singapore has the third highest GDP per capita of any sovereign state, and the UN puts it ninth in its Human Development Index. And yet, another well-known ranking system, the FIFA one, doesn't hold Singapore in quite such high regard. At the time of publishing this episode, the Lions sit 157th, in between New Caledonia and the Dominican Republic. They have never qualified for a World Cup, and have in fact only ever reached one Asian Cup, qualifying as hosts back in 1984. So why is this seemingly perfect country having so much trouble on the field? And apart from not qualifying for major tournaments, what have Singapore been up to over the last 100 years? Well, as it turns out, the past is not as bleak as you might think. Singapore, it's not known, it's not internationally known in football. So when it comes to... This is Gary Koh, a journalist who lives in the city-state and whose extensive knowledge of Singaporean football, both past and present, is going to carry us through this episode. But before we hear from him, there's important historical context to lay out in this more than meets the eye tale. The Singapore national team properly took to the field for the first time in April 1953 in a series of friendlies against South Korea, a full 12 years before independence. But while this is, logically, where the tale should begin, it's not quite that simple. It would be remiss of us not to first mention another almost parallel Singapore team who had been making waves overseas for many years already. In Malaysia, or Malaya as it was in the early 20th century, Elite football was traditionally played not by modern-style clubs, but by state representative sides. Think of it like English county cricket. The invitation to play in tournaments was also extended to the army and police football teams and, finally, to the FAs of two neighbouring countries. Singapore, whose National Football Association had become the first in all Asia after its birth in the 1890s, and also Brunei. And for the Singaporeans, it started well. If you want to talk about Singapore playing in Malaysia, its history goes as far back as in the 1920s where Singapore first took part in the Malaya Cup tournament, which they won on in the first edition back in 1923. The early years of Malaysia Cup football where Singapore is one of the strongest, strongest sites in Malaya. So 
this association has gone as far back in the 1920s during the British colonial times when they ruled both Malaysia, today's Malaysia, and Singapore as part of the Straits Settlement in that period. In a feat loosely similar to that of AS Monaco's fleeting rise to prominence in Ligue 1 in recent years, Singapore would go on to become a force in a foreign land. Now, it must be stressed that this was not a national team. Foreign players did turn out for the Lions, who operated more like a club, although the core was always made up of local players. The representative team's involvement in Malaysian tournaments provides the highlights of Singaporean football history for much of the last century. The side would contest the cup almost all the way from the 20s into the new millennium, only ever taking a break for a period of a few years before returning to action once again. So successful were the Singaporeans, they became the second most decorated side in the Malayan Cup's history. Their 24 trophy haul bettered only by that of rival Solango on 33. So great was the importance placed on the cup tournament that league football was late to catch on in Malaysia. It wasn't until 1982 that such a competition would get underway, even then only featuring as a precursory qualifying stage for the more prestigious knockout tournament. True to form, Singapore ended a brief hiatus from the Malaysian scene by winning the league at their first attempt in 1985, which they would round off nine years later with their first, and final, League and Cup double. This remarkable feat saw Singaporean football reach its zenith, but it also spelled the end for the Lions' stint across the Straits. A disagreement over gate receipts was blamed for Singapore FA's sudden exit from Malaysian competition that same year. That left Singaporean football at a loss. Without its main output for success, it desperately needed a rethink. Its own domestic league, the FAS Premier League, was in place, established six years prior in 1988 to replace the outdated National Football League. But the level of both of these was seen as inferior to that of the Malaysian League, and the two were merely seen as minor competitions, attracting far from noteworthy crowds and little public interest when compared to the keenly followed Singapore FA team overseas. So, to fill the void and garner some interest in local football, along came a new flagship competition. Japan has its J-League, Korea has its K-League, enter the S-League. In 1995, a task force was actually set up to see how Singapore could go professional on its own in a parallel way in how Singapore as an independent nation uh, had to go on its own after it, its enforced breakaway from Malaysia in 9th of August 1965. So in the, when, in the creation of the S-League, it was meant to help develop players for the for the national team and as well as to provide some kind of uh, regional affiliation with with the area, with the stadium in which they are based in, with the community in which they represent in the league. For all its success in Malaysia over the years, there was no hiding from the fact that Singapore was yet to make any mark at all on the world scene. Would the advent of the S-League prove to be the change in fortunes that the city-state needed? At the international level, success had been very elusive, even in Southeast Asia level, given that previously Southeast Asia Games men's football tournament was a full national team affair, and Singapore had only managed three silver medals in the last century, and a, a, a handful of bronzes since, and we have not even reached the uh, uh, semi-finals of the Bayano uh, multi-sport event, the men's football tournament, since 2013. In 1998, two years after the introduction of the new league, the intriguingly named Tiger Cup 
a moniker bestowed in the tournament by its sponsor, the popular local beer, would give the Lions a major test against neighbouring countries in the region, a chance to see how far they had come, and particularly, how far they still had to go. Singapore came into this tournament unfancied, and in that edition of the tournament, we had to play a qualifying round to enter into the tournament proper. We only had uh, some remnants from the famous 1994 Malaysia Cup side. We got some emerging young stars. We also had some who broke through from the league. They were previously unknown before 1995. So the young stars at that time that you got Amalatif Kamarudin, you have Lim Sun Singh, and then from the league, you got S. Subramani, you got Aris Sasikuma, and you got other young starlets who were also coming through previously who were previously on the fringes of the Malaysia Cup squad, uh, goalkeeper Reza Hassan, uh, and you got defender left back Sukhanan Zainal. So you got a good mix of experience and youth in that team. The injection of raw talent, ready to impress, steeled by a core of experienced stalwarts, gives Singapore a new angle coming into the tournament. This new lease of life signifies the dawn of a new era for the Lions. And it would seem Southeast Asia was caught unaware. At that time, I was still in school, so mainly I watched the matches on television and I actually watched uh, almost every Singapore game except in the semi-finals where I only watched a little bit of it. What was very particularly notable that although Singapore was largely ranked as the underdogs pre-tournament, we were helped by a very determined young squad that was determined to win, win things. They, were, they had been under the then head coach Barry Ripbread for a few years and they wanted to give him something to cheer about before he leaves. So what had happened there was the training was intense, the preparation was, was good even though it was very low-key. Uh, uh, you got... And there was that transition period where there were a few elderly, there were a few veterans, including superstar, uh, iconic striker Fandi Ahmad, David Lee, and Malik Awad who were bowing out. And you were, we were also missing a few previous national team regulars who were not included in this squad. As Whitbread chose a mix of talent that he could find at that moment, and it was also partially helped in that tournament that Malaysia did not send a strong side. In the group stage, in that group, we had group stage. We had Malaysia, who sent actually the core of the squad that competed in the 1997 FIFA World Youth Championship on home soil. We got Vietnam, the coast, who were quite strong and formidable, and we had Laos. Having overcome Cambodia and the Philippines to reach the finals event, Singapore were placed into Group B of the eight-team tournament. A 2-0 win over their Malay neighbours got Englishman Barry Whitbread's Lions off to the perfect start, with a respectable goalless draw against Vietnam putting them firmly in place to reach the semi-finals after two games. The third, a routine 4-1 victory over Laos, confirmed their spot in the final four, topping the group ahead of the hosts on goal difference. Playing that 3-5-2 formation that Whitbread had fielded, they showed plenty of tenacity and game and intelligence, particularly with the combination of Rafi Ali and Ahmad Latif Kamarudin providing the spark and the goals up front. The next day, all eyes were on Ho Chi Minh City for the conclusion of Group A. Knowing they were both all but guaranteed progression, Thailand and Indonesia were going head-to-head -to, -head to decide first and second place in the standings. 
Who would face whom in the semis was the question on everyone's minds, especially the minds of those on the pitch. And with surprise package Singapore stealing top spot the night before, and first place teams set to meet the other group's runners up, all bets were suddenly off. Uh, Singapore and Vietnam had already qualified as group winners and group runners up on the previous day. So what Thailand and Indonesia wanted was to get Singapore. That means they had to lose the game to get Singapore. So in that, in what was known as one of the strangest games ever in world football, particularly in the first half, that limited recollection that I have is that in the first half, both teams did not try to play any football despite the refereeing, the referee trying to encourage them to get some movement going. Then the goals came. But yet, if you look back at the YouTube replays, there wasn't a hint of serious competitiveness. They were, in a way, going trying to go through the motions and both teams wanted Singapore in the semi-final, not Vietnam. They feared the home crowd. They feared the players from Vietnam. They were thinking that Singapore were, were easy meets. And then that came that ridiculous on where you had the weird and unnatural, unnatural situation of the Thai strikers trying to defend the Indonesian goal. Gary's recollections have stood the test of time. Crazy as it may seem, in the dying moments of the game, the Thais found themselves defending the Indonesian goal. And, as a bemused audience looked on, Indonesia's Mercia Defendi wrote his name in the Tiger Cup history by purposefully burying the ball into his own net, handing Thailand the unwanted and truly bizarre victory. The war elephants had been right to fear Vietnam. They were soundly beaten 3-0 at the next stage. However, the real embarrassment was safe for Effendi's Indonesia. Rafi Ali and Nasri Nasir netted in the opening half hour to put unfancied Singapore two goals ahead, seeing the Indonesians crash out 2-1 in the semi-final they had been so desperate to arrange. On September 5th in Hanoi, the tournament's final day arrived. Vietnam had done as expected and were poised to take the Tiger Cup in front of an anticipant home crowd. Singapore, however, had been due far more credit than they had been afforded and had made larger nations pay en route to an historic final, albeit one in which they were still expected to roll over. But R. Sassi Kumar did not get the memo. The defender would only ever score three times in over 70 appearances for Singapore, but Alert to a long ball from deep in the 65th minute, his run and leap saw him glance the ball over the onrushing goalkeeper and into the unguarded net. His deft header silenced the home crowd and set the travelling Singaporeans on course for a shocking win. Half an hour later, a first piece of regional silverware was theirs. But here's the strange twist thereafter from that Tiger Cup because even though Singapore won the Tiger Cup in 98, the Singapore national football team was denied entry to compete in the Asian Games men's football tournament by the Singapore National Olympic Council because the then General Secretary of the uh, SNOC that, chose, that chooses the Singapore delegation for major multi-sports game deemed that a 1998 Tiger Cup victory to be of such a low standard that it was not worth um, for the national team, the Lions, to be playing against some of the best national teams in Asia, which does not even require a qualifying format, even till today. It's just entry for the Asian Games. It's just you want to enter the team into the tournament, men's football tournament, women's football tournament, no issue. There's no real qualifying process involved. But I slightly digress and I go back to that strange twist after the uh, Tiger Cup in 98. Thailand, despite being knocked out by... 
Vietnam in the semifinals of that tournament, they actually later regrouped under Peter Wave and went on to finish fourth place in the Asian Games men's football tournament on home soil a few months later. So sometimes it does have a little strange perverse <laughs> twist to it. So there we go. Achieving a first win on the continental stage was of colossal importance to football in Singapore, especially given the radical shake-up that had taken place just a few years before. But it was obvious that attitudes still needed to be changed. Two years later, the new millennium rolled around, and with it, the Tiger Cup, this time held in Thailand. But the rest of Southeast Asia, stung by Whitbread Singapore in 1998, would not write the Lions off again, and this time, they were ready. Vietnam and Malaysia took the top two places in Group B, pushing Singapore into third. The hierarchy was restored. After 1998, the Singapore national team changed its national coach to Vincent Subramaniam. While Vincent tried, it was not exactly... They were not exactly able to replicate the same effort and the other teams, the other national teams in this region, they sent stronger squads and... Thailand reclaimed its, its throne as the kingpins of Southeast Asian football because Thailand, for that period in the 1990s until the mid-2000s, they were the most dominant Southeast Asian team. Whether you have the Southeast Asian Games or the AFF Championships, they are the most dominant. So Singapore's 98 success could be viewed as a little anomaly. When a fresh managerial change turned up the same underwhelming result on home soil in 2002, the highs of 98 were already beginning to fade into history. But a former Yugoslavia international and Notts County goalkeeper was about to arrive in the city-state, ready to take Singapore into the 2004-2005 Tiger Cup campaign and shake things up once more. The Lions would bury the mistakes of the past two tournaments and fight their way to a second Southeast Asian title. The 2004-2005 uh, Tiger Cup winning campaign under Rajogor Avramovic. What he did to get the Lions prepared for this that particular tournament was a few months before, a month or two before the tournament, he got his friend, who is a fitness trainer, Alexander Bozengo, to whip the boys back into shape. And the main reason why Singapore did so well in the 2004-05 Tiger Cup was down to excellent teamwork. Again, we were not fancied after a disastrous showing in the 2002 Tiger Cup when we had one of, we hosted one of the groups on home soil and lost 0-4 to Malaysia, which remains one of the darkest nights in Singapore's football history. So, what Radi did was to bring in a fresh batch of young players who then included, I mean, some many of them are still playing today and as veterans in the scene by Haki Kaizan, Shari Ishak, Kairu Amri. He also blooded in goalkeepers Lionel Lewis and Hassan Sani in the squad and a host of other young players. The only veterans that remained were those who stood out. You got Captain I.D. Iskandar, you got reliable centre-back S. Subramani who was doing an excellent job at right-back and was leading in the team of the tournament alongside Daniel Bennett and Lewis in, at the end of the at the end of the campaign and you and there was also this other factor that Singapore was the pioneer in this I mean we used naturalized players so at that time in the 04-05 squad we had Daniel Bennett who was part of the first batch of the for, 
on of the foreign talent scheme, naturalized citizens, uh, that was introduced in Singapore sports back then. Because other sports, a few other sports in Singapore, they were also using um, naturalized players to represent the crescent and the five stars of Singapore of the Singapore flag in major international meets. To carry on as well, so in that squad, we also had the Nigerian duo of Agu Kashmir and ETB Dixon to provide some bike, some bites in the tech. This is where we hit the pause button on our trip through Singapore football history. And with good reason. We'll be back with Gary soon to continue the story of Singapore's successes. But first, it's my pleasure to introduce Singapore's all-time record cap holder and member of the FIFA 100 club, Daniel Bennett. <laughs> Having forged a long and successful career, now spanning out into its fourth decade, Daniel Bennett has rightfully earned his status as one of Singapore's most celebrated footballing sons. Now 42 and turning out for S-League outfit Tampanese Rovers, the defender has many a memory to look back on from over 140 national team appearances. But his route to the top of the Singaporean game was an unorthodox one. Curiously, the country Bennett went on to represent more times than any other player was not the country he was born in. His roots trace back not to the city-states Kalang, Sarangoon, nor Yishun, but to Norfolk, England. So Daniel, how did the move to Singapore come about in the first place? Let's go right back to the beginnings before it all started, really. And what was it like growing up in the city-state? Well, my parents were, were teachers originally, so they, they got uh, contracts over here to, to teach. Uh, that was way back in 1980. I was two years old, so I don't remember too much about that, obviously. Um, life in Singapore is, is very different now. I'm sure you've, you've been to Singapore, uh, one of the most expensive places in the world. Probably when we arrived, it was nothing like that. A third world country and really building its foundation. So lots of things have changed and it's really, really an honor for me to, to, to have been able to live here so long and then eventually represent the country. And was, was sport always a big part of your life um, growing up? I mean, were there opportunities to play? Because obviously Singapore is known for a lot of things and a lot of successes. Uh, sport perhaps probably isn't one. And so I just wondered how that really tied in uh, growing up as a youth in Singapore. No, I mean, for myself, sport was always number one. Um, I think when you're, you're good at something when you're young, you, you enjoy it and you, you follow it through. I wasn't, I, I was okay at school, but not the best as most footballers are so uh it was always sport which was my, was my number one i played rugby i played I, I ran i was an athlete and uh football was always the the first for me yes and so how really what was the point for you where uh, football um made the transition from say a hobby to something you could perhaps see uh, blossoming into a career was there ever a stage where that happened for you well, I think from an early age, there was an ambition that I wanted to, to be a professional footballer. But obviously, you don't know what that means when you're, when you're young, really. You don't really understand what it takes and, and uh, what you have to do to get there. So I presume it, it was when I was around 16, 17, and I started to sort of get interest of some of the local clubs in Singapore. Um, I was training with some of the, the national youth teams, although I couldn't play for them because I was... Uh, I was uh, still a British citizen, so uh, they, they put me in contact with some clubs and I started training with them and by the time I was getting close to my 17th birthday, I was already in the first team at uh, one of the local clubs, so 
uh, it really it really happened within a year or so that I was sort of playing. I guess it was sort of semi-professional football. Nobody was professional. I was still at school, but it sort of got me into the mindset. And then when I went to university, I always had that in, in my mind that I, I could possibly come back and do that. And speaking of university, having lived almost all your life uh, in the Lion City, how did it feel returning to England um, for that further stage of your education? And how did that balance with a burgeoning football career? Yeah, it was, it was hard coming back. I mean, the culture over in England is just completely different. So I was, I was at Loughborough University, a sporting, a well-known sporting university. Um, a lot of good players, and I found it difficult to, to settle in to start with. I, was in the, I started off in the fourth team. Um, my dad called it the pub team. He said, what are you doing in the pub team? And, and slowly uh, I, I crept up. I was in the seconds, and then I was in the first team. But... Um, it was, it, was, it was not easy. Uh, the culture is very different. Uh, I'd only ever spent summer holidays there. So just getting used to being so far from the family and, and uh, the weather as well. I mean, it was a complete change for me over there, yes. A footballer's early 20s could be considered the prime time to secure a place in the national team. Indeed, many manage it even earlier than that. Bennett, as he says, had been training with Singapore's national youth outfit before his departure for Loughborough, but one thing had stood in the way of his inclusion, and it was nothing to do with his ability. Though he had grown up, and been schooled, in the city-state, and had known no other home, Singapore's strict eligibility laws ruled him out of contention. He could not play. To do so, he needed a Singapore passport. And to get one of those, there was an issue. He would have to renounce his British one. And so in Singapore, before you've gone, you've spent time uh, with, with Tiong Baru, um, coming as a semi-pro, uh, just as a teenager, getting into the swing of things. You've gone to England um, to do your degree. After finishing your studies, you returned back to the city-state. And what sort of path did your career take then? Well, honestly, I, I came back thinking it could be sort of six months just allowing me to live there again. Because uh, initially, my contract was six months. I thought, it would give me an opportunity to, to sort of come home. I considered Singapore still my home and perhaps find a job. Uh, then, then shortly after I'd arrived, they started talking about uh, the foreign talent scheme, which in Singapore was the scheme to, to get foreigners to start representing the Singapore national team to, to, to improve the, the quality of the, the football in Singapore and give us better chance of winning uh, trophies against uh, countries within the region, really. And uh, sort of within a year or so, uh, my career sort of took off. I was named Player of the Year in 2001 in Singapore. I played against uh, Liverpool and Manchester United when they came. And, and from that, I, I managed to get some trials back in England. And as you know, I ended up at Wrexham within a period which I confirmed that I would take that citizenship. And, and then, uh, of course, my association with Singapore continued from there. And I mean, because obviously there's, there's two big points there, obviously, you've, uh, you've, you've managed to uh, find yourself some, some football with a reputable club in England, or, or should I say Wales, um, and you've also taken the move to, to become a Singapore citizen. Um, but just to look at the, the Wrexham side of things, uh, firstly, what are really your memories from the, your time with the Red Dragons? And what was it that, that convinced you, that encouraged you really to come back from the UK to pursue a, a career in Singapore? Uh, probably my memories 
I had, a lot of it was just walking out on match day because the crowds were just unbelievable there. Even if it was a three, 4,000 crowd, I mean, the noise and the, the passion which the fans had, I, I will never forget. Uh, walking out of the race course was, was wonderful. Uh, it's, they're, one of, they're some of the best moments in my career, uh, for sure. And I, I still keep in contact with some of the, some of the fans there. Uh, it's nice to know that I was held in fairly high regard as a player. So uh, Wrexham is, is always close to my heart. Uh, but I think more than, that, more than anything, it's the, the boys off the field. I had a great group of guys. Uh, I remember driving in with Lee Trundle every day. As you know, he's, a, he's quite a character. So uh, I'll never forget those drives in with, with Lee. Um, and I lived in the city centre in the end, in the city centre of Wrexham. And I had some good mates that we... You know, we, we were all single at that time and we all hung around together. So there were some really good friends which I've made from that period and, uh, and I still keep in contact with them. Uh, after that great time, obviously two stints with, with Wrexham, uh, sandwiched around your time with Singapore Armed Forces, uh, what was it that made you decide to return to Southeast Asia following your stint in football? Well, I think, I think the fact that I, I actually took the Singapore passport during my period at Wrexham, uh, it made it a lot easier to represent the country being in Singapore. Um, I, I, I honestly did want to come back anywhere. I really miss Singapore in many ways. Uh, I, the, only the only regret I would have is that I wondered whether I could have played at a higher level in England. Uh, there, was, there was some interest from some championship clubs while I was there. And uh, that's the only regret I would have. But then... You know, I've had such a wonderful career in, in Singapore and, and you, you can't have it both ways. So I felt that coming back to Singapore would allow me to travel much more easily with the team. There's certain competitions like the Suzuki Cup in Southeast Asia where it's not a recognized international tournament. So you get the, the likes of Edrington now, who, who's, uh, who's playing for Cardiff. So he's, he wasn't able to come back for those games. Um, so I just felt it would make it easier if I was in Singapore and, uh, and I, I, I would get the opportunity to travel around Asia. I played against the likes of Japan. I played in Korea, played, uh, played in all, all sorts of, in the Middle East. So I've had a fantastic time traveling, not only playing the games. And, and speaking of, of opportunity with the national team, obviously this, this lasted um, throughout, well, across two decades really, but it started back in, in 2002. In the lead-up uh, to the defence of the Tiger Cup, uh, late in the year in 2002, going on to win in 2004, 2002 wasn't quite the same tournament, but that was obviously the build-up of the beginning of your international career. Um, and the first game, in fact, was a warm-up game, wasn't it, against the Philippines? Um, and how did yeah. it feel finally taking to the field as a Singapore player? You know, How did it feel to, to start on that journey that's taking you to the, the FIFA 100 Club? I think it probably hits you when... Uh you sing the national anthem at the start. That's this, yeah, it's an emotional moment and you're singing the, the national anthem and the fans are there. And, you know, it's the stadium which I, I grew up going to and watching those, those players of uh, past eras. So the likes of Fandi Ahmad, if, if people know, I mean, there's some, there were some very good players and they beat some, some top teams in the past. Uh, so standing on that field and singing the national anthem is, was a fantastic feeling. It was a country which I'd grown, grown up in and it felt like home, so it was natural. 
Bennett's journey to the national team was now complete. But in a country whose strict laws obligate all able 18-year-old men to undertake two years national service, something Bennett was exempted from, this move was bound to raise a few eyebrows. You've always been very clear in, uh, in interviews, etc., that, that Singapore is your home, and you are Singaporean now, of course, officially. Um, at the start, though, uh, were you ever concerned about the reception you might receive as a naturalised player in the national team? Was it ever different for you, coming obviously from a, a different background? Uh, I didn't worry about it myself, really, in terms of the fans. I, I don't think there was an, ever an issue. There were, uh, there were other national uh, players who were naturalised at that time. Uh, just before me, so we we were we were in that team together. Uh, there were sometimes murmurs within within the, the the players that they weren't quite happy that I was there, but uh, it always felt like home. So, I mean, some things you just got to shut out and and get on with it. And and I've always had a good reception, and and I'm still here. So, in the end, uh, I presume that they accepted me. One of the greatest moments in Singapore history obviously came in the 1998 uh, Tiger Cup. Um, that title wasn't defended, unfortunately, in 2002. But in 2004, 2005, you were part of the team uh, that did manage to win that title back. And how did that feel to be part of um, a championship winning squad? I think it's, I think it's the same as uh, many, many uh, teams would say. Once you've won that first one, you have the belief that you can do it again. So I think going into that tournament, probably there was not as much belief that we were actually going to win it. But I remember as, as the, the tournament progressed and we got further, we grew as a team, really. The young local-born players, they also rose up to the challenge. We didn't start particularly well. We had draws against Vietnam. We had draw against Indonesia. But as the tournament progressed, we, we, we began to grow together. We had a fantastic manager as well, Radio Ramarovic. And... And uh, he really, he really had us on our toes. We were very disciplined. We were very, very fit. Qualifying from the group in second place, Singapore hit three goals in extra time to eliminate Myanmar 8-5 over two legs. It was Bennett who had opened the Lions' account in the opening game, with Nigerian-born Agu Kashmir dealing the final blow in leg two on 108 minutes. And, uh, you know, we just felt like in the end we were going to win it. You just had the feeling that we were going to win it. And I remember in that first, uh, the, the, the first leg of the final I scored after five minutes, you, you probably read that. I just got married two days before, so everything was going well. Bennett's goal propelled Singapore to a 5-2 aggregate win over Indonesia, securing a second ASEAN title, as goalkeeper Lionel Lewis was named the tournament's most valuable player. And for Bennett, this triumph is unsurprisingly a cherished memory. It gave us the belief to, to kick on, but also winning it on home ground, that was just a, that was a wonderful feeling in that stadium, in the old Kalang Stadium, uh, in front of our own fans, which was packed. It was 60,000. Um, yeah, that, that was probably the, the one moment which was the most special. With Avramovic at the helm, the ball was finally rolling again. On top once more, the Lions were keen to test their ASEAN momentum on the higher, continental stage. Actually, in the Asian Cup qualifying campaign in 2006, Singapore was the only nation to defeat Iraq in the qualifying campaign. Yes, Singapore was the only team to defeat Iraq 2-0 at, at the old national stadium back in February 2006, if I remember the dates correctly. And no other country managed to defeat Iraq for the rest of the qualifying tournament. Yes, we even lost to them 4-2 in 
the Middle East, and even in the eventual Four Nation Asian Cup uh, finals tournament in Southeast Asia, where Iraq sens sensationally won the tournament, a fairy tale in Asian and world football. But in between that period, yes, we have delivered solid results, even against respectable international opponents. Uh, narrow losses to European sites, Denmark, and earlier on, Norway. We also held our own against stronger teams outside of Southeast Asia. We drew China nil-nil in the Asian Cup qualifying. We even probably at one point took the lead in the away leg against Iraq at that moment. The team, with Bennett at the heart of defence, came into 2007 with the sole aim of retaining their title in the now-renamed AFF Championship. Their swashbuckling momentum was to continue as they set their stall out early. We had an, an astounding result, the 11-0 victory over Laos in the group stage, which broke the Nationals' largest margin of victory, the record score at international football that still stands to this day, with No Alam Shah scoring seven goals in on that evening, just in front of 6,000 people. We survive a really nerve-wracking semi-final both legs in Shah Alam and at the National Stadium in particular uh, to win on penalties, especially the second leg in particular. That was unforgettable because the rain, it was a rainy day that day, but the heavens paused to allow the game to proceed. And after more than 120 minutes of play and several penalties, Lionel Lewis saved the final penalty from Malaysia to send us through into the final. And thereafter, the heavens opened again. Noel Amshar's goal 17 minutes from time had secured a vital equaliser away from home a few days before. And Singapore found themselves having to come from behind again to force extra time in the shootout. But Lewis's heroics would finally see them through. But that nerve-wracking part of having so many people willing the Lions on, even though we fell behind again, just like it was in the first leg, to build the Lions on, even when the players were obviously feeling tired, to build the Lions on and to and also to give psychological problems like through the jeers and all to the to the Malaysians. Because the Malaysian side, while it was a strong squad at the regional standard, to really be able to edge them to really be able to have that psychological steel against our regional rivals, our fiercest enemies in international football, to win on penalties in front of 55 pairs of eyes, 55,000 Singaporeans wheeling them on out there at the old national stadium pitch to give them the psychological boost towards the end. At the final stage, a 2-1 win at home against Thailand with goals from Noel Amshar and Faradine Mustafic meant the 1-1 draw in the return leg in Bangkok was enough to secure a third ASEAN title. The Lions were in their prime. I will admit that in, the, in that tournament, our football at times, apart from the 11-0 win, wasn't that pretty. We also had a lot more foreign-born players in the squad. It's, I mean, uh, the banner was in that squad as well, but now we had Faroudin Mustafic, we had a Chinese-born Shi Jiayi, also in the team, as well as an, another Nigerian defender, Precious Emil Girare, alongside Itimi Dixon. So there were a few rejects, but at that time, by then, the foreign-born players, as well as the young local core, were 
taking control with the few stalwarts in ID and silver money holding the fort as the veteran leaders of the team. By this point, Bennett had been an integral part of the squad for five years. This tight-knit unit, who up until 1998 had never claimed any trophy of note, had now been crowned regional champions three times in a decade. But it wasn't all plain sailing. A serious incident later that year could have thrown all that into jeopardy. In the end-of-season Singapore Cup final between Tampanese Rovers and Singapore Armed Forces, Bennett and Alam Shah, top scorer at that year's ASEAN tournament and whose converted penalty had famously helped to edge the Lions past Malaysia, found themselves this time on opposing sides. As the game drew towards its conclusion, the two internationals challenged for the ball on the edge of the penalty area, landing awkwardly together. Unbelievably, Alam Shah extricated himself from the tangle on the floor and, to the horror of those looking on, proceeded to dash his knee into Bennett's head. Teammates tried to restrain the striker, who still managed to break free and kick Bennett again. Bennett was knocked unconscious by the blows and had to be taken to hospital. Violent conduct is naturally a serious matter, but when delivered in such vicious fashion, and when it involves two stars at a national team, the attention it draws grows tenfold. The FAS fined Shah 2,000 Singapore dollars for his actions and handed down a year-long ban, later reduced on appeal to seven months. The forward would miss part of Singapore's 2010 World Cup qualifying campaign, but would soon be back in action, and with both players considered indispensable, the matter had to be dealt with. Fortunately, looking back on it 13 years later, Bennett harbours no ill will. Well, he, he was banned for... He was banned for, I don't know if it was eight months in the end, I'm not sure. Uh, but no, I mean, Raddy sat us down and we talked about it. And, you know, sometimes there's got to be a time for forgiveness. So uh, we, we decided to push on. It was the best for the team. And to be honest, we're good mates now. So there's, there's no issues. I see him around. I see him coaching. And uh, we're, we're good, yeah. The exact number of caps that Bennett has won in a Singapore shirt is up for debate. Different sources claim he's won from 142 to as many as 145. But one thing is for certain, nobody has won more. Not bad for a man who began his international career just weeks before his 25th birthday. And I imagine, you know, in so many games and so many years uh, at, at the forefront of Singapore football and obviously travelling to all corners of Asia and various qualification trails, you must have seen some sights uh, in, in that time uh, with the national team. I mean, yeah, if you talk about stadiums, we, we played in uh, probably the, the, the best stadium I played in was in Japan, in Saitama Stadium. We played the Japanese national team in a World Cup qualifier. And I walked in, it was just like on a play, PlayStation game. It was unbelievable. Uh, I mean, top players will get that all the time. But um, walking in with the Singapore team, it was, it was a proud moment. We lost, we lost the game, I think, 1-0. We had a chance at the end to equalise. Uh, but that was a memory in terms of one of the best stadiums. We've, we've obviously been to some other places. Uh, Jordan was a memorable one in a way that we, we had the opportunity to qualify for the Asian Cup. It was the last game and we needed a draw. And we'd had a fight with the boys from their team in the tunnel the game before. So going to Jordan, it was a little bit of a revenge for them. And we didn't quite know what to expect. They put us up in the mountains. We played a game up in a, in a field in the mountains, a stadium there. It was windy. The boys were aggressive. The fans were wild. Uh, in the end, we, 
we uh, we lost two one in the, in the final moments of the game, but it was an atmosphere which I won't forget. Um, I think that the, the other one is probably Tajikistan, where I, I, I'm still certain they poisoned half our team before the game, and uh, the referee prior to the game said that you know if you need to go off part way through the game, just go. You don't have to ask permission because we were just running to the bathroom the whole game. So we spent half the game with, with players going on and off the field. And it was a, it was a tough game. I think the, the military had come to watch. And we, we, we drew with them and, and we, uh, we, we qualified for the third round of the, the World Cup that year. So that, that was a success that we had uh, in very hard conditions. Um, yeah, there, there are lots of stories and, and some, some great places we, we've been to. And, Places which I wouldn't have had the opportunity to travel to had I not been with the national team. The 2012 AFF Championship provided Singapore with their fourth win in the competition, surviving a scare in the second leg in Thailand to hold out for a 3-2 aggregate win in the final. Looking at the 2012, the, the final, Singapore's fourth victory in, in what was now called the AFF uh, Suzuki Cup, um, the final was of added, added importance for you yourself. It took you to uh, cap 100, a number 122, uh, putting you on top of the Singapore uh, all-time list. Um, all the way from Philippines in 2002, straight through to Thailand, um, all this time later, how did it feel not only to have become an established member of, of, of Singaporean football folklore, but to rise to the very top of, of the national echelon? I, su- I suppose when you're there, you don't really think of it. You just, you're just playing. We, we were playing 50, 60 games a year. You know, we were playing club football. We were playing the AFC Cup or the Champions League. We were, we were playing friendly games. We were playing the National A-team games. So you're sort of just going game by game. You don't have really time to, 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 to see what you're actually doing. But, you know, now I look back... Uh, I think it was quite an achievement. Um, there, there will be players in future who, who get more games, but you know, I started with the national team when I was just just going to turn 25. So to get 142 caps in 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 that period, I think I I I pretty much played every game. Uh, I wasn't injured much. I I played the majority of the national team games. So looking back, back, I'm very proud of what I've done. But like I said, there will be players who who hit more. And it'll be good when they do because, uh, you know, that, that we've got some good players in the national team now as well. And obviously we've spoken a lot about uh, the past and the history of, of Singapore football. What about the now? Obviously, you know, your days in the national team uh, are behind you, but you're still actively uh, involved uh, at club level. What is the plan really for the moment? I just enjoy playing. So, I mean, I signed one-year contracts now. I, I don't think it's fair that I ask for, for a longer contract at my age. So. I go in and they say, do you want to continue? I say, well, yeah, I love playing. So why stop now? I can still play. I know a lot of people have told me once you stop, it's a long post-career. So enjoy it while you can. So I am doing some coaching work on the side and it kind of works well with the football. It allows me to do both at the same time. So at the moment, there's no reason why I would stop. I mean, I feel strong. I feel fit. I think I will know if I can't contribute to the team, but I think at the moment that I can help. I can help the younger boys as well. I do do contribute on the field. I play in the first 11. Uh, so, 
so I have a contract until the end of the year, and at the end of the year we'll we'll talk again, or or I'll know perhaps that this is the end, and I'll say, well, now I'm going to move on to something else. So, what next for the Singaporeans? Eight barren years have passed since that fourth and final AFF Championship win, and the gap between regional and continental success remains firmly unbridged. The S-League attracts little attention from within the city-state and is still virtually unheard of in the wider world, with the national team languishing in the lower reaches of the FIFA rankings. Change is afoot, however. Measures have been brought in to try and revitalise Singaporean football, but will this be enough to turn the tide? And what barriers still stand in the way of success for the national team? Unfortunately, due to a rather flawed youth development system where it was centralised under the national football body, the Football Association of Singapore, and partially due to other factors such as education, which is a top priority in the country, and also uh, parents, yes, young players' parents who will want to try to interfere with what the coaches have in mind through backdoor meetings, through talk calling the coaches to see to ask why their sons are not in the national youth teams and so on and so forth. And unfortunately the career prospects of a professional footballer in Singapore is looking a lot bleaker these days, despite the Football Association of Singapore introducing incentives such as in a such as in a rather perverse way they reserve uh, three starting lineup places out of eleven for players under the age of 23. And in the Albrechts and Igata Singapore side, which is actually a set a local satellite team of the J-League club Albrechts Igata, two Singapore young two Singaporeans must be fielded in the first 45 minutes of the game. So even if the two Singaporeans are not the best technical players, the Albrechts side they are effectively playing with nine men for the first 45 minutes. So unfortunately this is some is there's no, in my opinion, there's no such thing as you trying to enforce enforce youth policies into professional football when the young players are not ready. I mean, when the young player is clearly ready to play professional football, to play football against the men, they will be ready. If they are not ready, they aren't. And unfortunately, in this case, our youth talent system is still being compromised in a way that it's hodgepodge measure from the local governing body. The other thing that um, the nation needs to have a look at is trying to convince the parents whether it, whether it, it doesn't matter the race. It's about the economic realities because in recent years, players who have not even reached 30 years old, even ex-national players like Al-Kasivi Rahman, they have retired from professional football even before they turn 30 because football is not an attractive prospect in Singapore anymore. You have to play in Malaysia, Thailand to get the five-figure monthly salaries to make this career a financially fulfilling one. And at the same time, you also need a decent income because football, a football career, playing one in particular, is a very short one. So the other dilemma... The other challenge is that the whole local football ecosystem as a whole, it has to solve is firstly, how do you complement the nation's obsession with education? As for the national team as a whole, I think it is actually important for the Football Association of Singapore 
to put more young players into the form. But here's the issue. How does Singapore go about throwing more young players into the action without implementing these incentives? Gary has some ideas. Ultimately, everything has to start back at the kids' level, at the youth level, to be technically proficient, to train them to be more intelligent in how code in their play. And that's where the coaching education has to be further enhanced as well. Because if the Singapore education system allows uh, children at the age of six to go through primary, secondary, and a tertiary system, whether it's the two-year high school or the three-year polytechnic, before going to universities or even through a different centralized institution, the Institute of Technical Education. Uh, that's where you give them both the studies and as well as the uh, as well as the actual education to provide the job skills so that they know that if football does not work for them, there's still a backup plan for them to go. Yes, FAS has been working hard on this, but I still think a lot more can be done to make sure to make parents feel a lot more convinced that football is worth a career to be pursued, even if it's a short one. Getting the balance between football and education right at an early age may help rectify some of the problems Singapore is encountering with attitudes towards the game. But there are still a couple of factors we haven't spoken about, and they're important ones. The first regards the same difficulties that Daniel Bennett faced earlier in his career. Some say they are still standing in the way of young players wishing to represent the Lions. Singapore's rejection of dual citizenship. The second affects all Singaporean players alike. Last year, a young English Premier League player by the name of Ben Davis, part of the Fulham squad and a Singapore national, renounced his citizenship after his application to delay his compulsory national service was rejected. Not wishing to give up on his formative years, Davis took the drastic step of defecting from the service and stated his unwillingness to return to Singapore. He has now committed his international future to Thailand. His country of birth. If let's say somebody wants to represent Singapore and has Singaporean ancestry through his uh, parents or grandparents, they will still he's still required to give up the other passport to play for the national team. And furthermore, there is this national service uh, issue because every Singaporean male, whether it's even it has not even extended to ancestry, is required to serve two years of national service. And I mean, you let's not just talk about Ben Davis. you got a current English professional footballer, Luke Onion, um, who actually is also eligible to play for Singapore because of, because of his great-uncle, uh, great Lipkin Sun, who was actually a former cabinet minister in the 1960s and 1970s. So you've got players who are eligible, willing to play, but you've got the very rigid and, and for good reason, the one passport policy that Singapore as a nation adheres to. is like you either have the Singaporean passport or the other, not both. But unfortunately, sports in Singapore is elitist and, and currently our footballers are way far I mean, they are far off the mark required for exemption so that they can continue to pursue their uh, football ambitions by training in the elite academy like what Ben Davis does. An athlete's peak years is in his late teens and into the mid-20s or even towards the late 20s. 
after that the physical condition declines and when you miss out on these golden years of absorbing information to learn the stuff from the best from the best in the world that you can, that they can offer it's a big pity but ultimately ultimately singapore football has to work on its own roots first but ultimately things have to be firm up things have to improve a lot to enhance the conditions to enhance the football education and culture in singapore before we can even go further to make the case that footballers should be uh, exempt from national service in their peak as we bring this final topic and the episode to a close i thought it'd be best to give the last word to bennett uh, how do you think the game in singapore has developed over the years and what do you think it is in store for its future? Mm-hmm. Well, this is a difficult question. There's been a lot of lo- uh, rules implemented in the league. Uh, they, they felt that the, the average age was a little bit too high and young players were not coming in. So what it's done now is really create... Well, a lot, a lot of senior players have lost their jobs um, because obviously you're looking at bringing more than three young boys in because if, if some of those are injured or or they're suspended, you obviously need backup. So half the squad now is pretty much a youth team. Um, you, you have sort of 10, 10 seniors and, and 10 youth boys. So it's split squads in, in a way. I mean, prior to training, we, we play with the ball and you find that there's not perhaps the same team spirit as there was before. But I think the biggest problem for... Uh, Singapore football is when those boys hit 24 and they still have this rule they've been playing first team football until they're 20, until they hit 24 and then they don't have a club so whether this is working I, I don't know but at some point I think they have to lift these rules and say okay we've, we've, we've got rid of perhaps enough senior players apart from myself and and now we have enough injection of youth. Now let those players who are hitting 23, 24, 25, let them continue playing rather than losing their jobs because, because you've given so much play time for them uh, up until they're 23. They have to be able to continue. So I think there needs to be more clubs in Singapore. There's only probably six local sort of clubs. And we have, the, we have a young kind of national team. We have a Brunei team. We have a, a team from Japan. So I think there should be more. And so naturally, those young players will start to play rather than uh, being forced to play. And I think that that is a big issue we're having at the moment. And the quality of football has, uh, has gone down. And it makes it very hard when we go into the, the Asian competitions, ASEAN, the, the, the AFC Cups, the Champions Leagues, it makes it harder for us to compete. So I think there needs to be a good look at that. And... Uh, and then I think there needs to be more money in the league, but then that's uh, another issue altogether. While Singapore's footballing past throws up some hidden gems, the all-conquering Malaysian Cup team and the triumphant Tiger Cup campaigns, its future remains unclear. A national team that excelled at the beginning of the century has gradually gone off the boil and the lion is in danger of losing its bite. But if one country has excelled when down in its luck, it's Singapore. <laughs> Thank you.
Well, that caps off another episode of Outside Football Podcast. Thank you for joining me again. It was a pleasure to deliver you this show and share the fascinating story of a fascinating country that's very close to my heart. Uh, big thank yous to the people who helped me with this episode. So a massive thanks to Siv and John, to uh, Gary Coe, Lin Wei Shang and Daniel Bennett in Singapore. And of course to John Malone for first showing me those Tiger Cup videos so many years ago. And to Adam Pup and Shan Jones for their continued support. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. If you did, do take a look at the rest of our episode catalogue. It's available on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Podbean. If you're on Twitter, come find us at, at OutsideFooty, that's footy with a Y. And there you can find all sorts of updates from obscure football around the world, as well as links to our episodes. I've been Cameron Pope. You can find me too at at Cam Pope Sport. Uh, I always appreciate feedback, so do get in touch. Uh, look forward to bringing you a new expose on another national team very soon. Take care and see you next time.